Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 77 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How you doing? Good. Um, I love an even number. Not an even number. You know what I mean. The same number. 77 is satisfying. Continue on. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. All good. <laughs> oh, we got some Patreon shout outs. Yes. Thank you so much and welcome to Casey, Sean, Stacey, Jordan and Lincoln. Thanks for the support everyone. Much appreciated. We would like to advise that this case contains graphic content and for any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, it contains names, descriptions and discussions of deceased people. We encourage you to use your discretion and exercise self-care when listening to this episode. He has lived and visited many, many places across our country. The WA Special Crime Squad has been in close contact with cold case teams in all other policing jurisdictions in both Australia and New Zealand, but we have actually been unable to establish any link. He admitted to three killings in a suicide note that he left before taking his life last year. Now, police are confident uh, they know who two of those victims are, one in New South Wales and one in WA, but they're still not sure who that third victim could possibly be, and right now there's a nationwide search for information because... We talked a lot about the Kimberley region in Western Australia during the episode about Joseph Schwab a couple of weeks ago. His spree of murders occurred during 1987. The brutality of the crimes and subsequent manhunt for Schwab shook the top end and its citizens undoubtedly sighed with relief when he was killed by police during a shootout. Some 10 years later, on January 13, 1997, and 21-year-old Sarah Lee Davey was travelling with her parents from where they lived, a place called One Arm Point, a couple of hours south to Broome, the largest town in the Kimberley region. It was a tiresome trip for Sarah, as there were three young kids along for the ride, and being 21, she probably had other things on her mind. The family's end destination was Caratha which was another eight hours or so drive from Broome. Dennis and Irene Davey had Sarah in June of 1975 in the town of Derby. She attended both the primary school and high school there until year nine, when the family moved to One Arm Point. Sarah then attended the David Drysdale High School in town. For one reason or another, Dennis and Irene decided to send Sarah to Kewdale Senior High down in Perth, presumably a boarding-type situation, as that's some 24 hours travel to Perth from the top end where they lived. But that setup didn't work out for Sarah. Coming from the heat of the Kimberley, Perth was simply too cold for her, so she returned home to One Arm Point and began working at the local community store. This is a general store servicing the community with a number of household essentials. 
One on Point is quite a small Indigenous community of just under 400 residents, most of whom are Bardi people. Indeed, the town itself is often referred to as simply Bardi or the Indigenous name of Ardiloon. The name One Arm Point came from the local tale of an unfortunate perler who had an accident with dynamite while trying to catch fish in the bay. So Sarah was working in the store, active within the local community and becoming quite a skilled administrator in her role around this time in 1991. By 1992, Sarah had fallen pregnant and by the end of the year given birth to a baby boy. Sadly, he died of cot death, or SIDS as they now call it, shortly after his birth. This understandably caused Sarah quite a lot of grief and she became withdrawn while coping with the loss of her boy in the latter part of 1992. Over time, Sarah picked herself up, no doubt with the support of her family and local community, and she began spending more time away from One Arm Point and venturing into the closest big towns, being Derby and Broome. She began spending more time away from her family, who she was very close with, and seeing young men. Sarah had a bright smile and was very kind, fun-loving and sporty, so she received plenty of attention. One of these guys was named Stuart Maru, and he and Sarah began a relationship in the time after this. They actually knew each other from their time in high school, but Sarah's family were not a fan of Stuart. This caused some tension between Sarah and her parents, They wanted her to stop seeing him and she kept pulling the other way. In 1996, Stuart broke Sarah's jaw and he was charged for this and ended up serving some time in jail. While in prison, Sarah continued to visit Stuart despite her family warning her off him and she told a number of friends that once he was released, she was going to take off with Stuart someplace. She'd let them know, but not her parents. But at this time, on January the 13th, 1997, Stuart was still behind bars and Sarah had arrived in Broome with her family only a quarter of the way into their journey at best, a long ride ahead. But while the Davies were in Broome, they bumped into a family friend at a hotel bar. Her name was Margaret Mippy. They all had a drink together and came up with the grand plan for Sarah to stay with Margaret for a few days while the rest of the family continued to Caratha. They'd pick her up in a few days' time on their way back home. So they dropped Sarah's gear at Margaret's house before returning to the bar for another drink. As the day went on, Sarah's parents left and she kicked on with Margaret. They continued drinking throughout the evening with a male friend named Michael Cox. By 10pm, the trio left the hotel bar and went to another venue. But Margaret was refused entry for whatever reason – She had been drinking all afternoon, so perhaps this contributed. Whatever the case, she took a taxi home and Sarah and Michael had a few more drinks in this bar before leaving for a third venue called the Nippon Inn. Sarah had been to this place a number of times. She'd often go to the Nippon and the Perlers Bar in Broome and drink quite heavily until the early hours of the morning. But while she did binge drink when out... Sarah always had a happy disposition and enjoyed herself, and she kept herself neat. She was never messy or aggro as the drinking session progressed. At the Nippon, however, Michael was refused entry, not due to intoxication, but because he didn't have ID on him to prove his age. So Michael took off and Sarah went in on her own. There were a number of Australian naval seamen drinking at the Nippon, and Sarah began chatting to some of them, one in particular, a guy named Richard Durrer. 
They chatted and had a few drinks, and Sarah, by this stage, was beginning to get quite intoxicated. She left the Nippon with Richard sometime after midnight and met up with someone who was simply referred to as a male friend of Sarah's. Presumably, this was Michael Cox from earlier, but we can't be sure of that. He accompanied Sarah and Richard to a nearby service station, where they called for a taxi. Around 2.30am, Sarah and Richard took the taxi to where his ship, the HMAS Geelong, was docked. This was at the Broom Wharf. Sarah's friend, Michael, or someone else, was no longer with them by this stage, having gone his own way. It was just Richard, Sarah and their taxi driver, a guy named Klaas Kiwiet. When they arrived, Richard got out of the taxi and headed towards the HMAS Geelong, where on the open bridge leading onto the vessel, Richard spoke with another sailor named Dean Fraser, who was on watch duty. Richard, too, was quite drunk by this stage, and as such, when he requested to bring Sarah on board so they could have sex, Dean refused his fellow sailor entry. Undeterred, Richard reiterated his intention to have sex with Sarah as he left Dean and headed back to help Sarah out of the taxi. Dean had a pretty clear view of the whole wharf, but at the end of it was a large shed and he couldn't see behind that. And this was where Richard and Sarah went, presumably for the purpose Richard had suggested. But half hour later, Richard returned to the ship and when Dean asked him if he'd had sex with Sarah, Richard said no, she didn't want to and she had since left. Dean hadn't seen her leave and had a clear view of the wharf, as we said, but thought little of it at the time as Richard returned to the ship. It was a very brief exchange. A few days later, when Dennis and Irene returned from Caratha, Margaret told them that Sarah hadn't returned to her house after they'd been out a few nights earlier. Sarah was a grown woman, sure, but by the same token, it was concerning she hadn't returned after the plans they'd made. Sarah's parents promptly reported her missing to the police. WA detectives Borden and Saxon were assigned to the case and arrived in Broome thereafter to begin the investigation. The initial days following Sarah's disappearance were quite confusing. She hadn't touched any of her bank accounts, police knew that, so the possibility she'd left to prepare for Stuart Maru's release was slim. He was still inside and she'd need money to get around and survive. Another thing complicating matters was the report of another missing woman in the area who had a strikingly similar name to Sarah, until this other female was eventually located on January the 23rd. Initial inquiries undoubtedly focused on Sarah's movements the night she was last seen, and although not documented, police presumably spoke with Michael Cox and taxi driver Klaas Kiwiet in these early stages, as they were some of the last people to have seen her. They also spoke with sailors Dean Fraser and Richard Durrah at the HMAS Geelong, Richard having been with Sarah and Dean seeing them in the early hours of the 14th. Dean relayed what he had seen to the police and confirmed that he hadn't seen Sarah leave by the end of his shift at 4am. As we said, he could see the entire wharf apart from this area behind the shed, but he simply could have missed her and she'd caught a taxi back into town. Dean did tell police, however, that when Richard returned to the ship and told him he had struck out and she had left... He appeared to have a few scratches on one of his cheeks, which looked like fingernails. Other sailors aboard later noticed this too. Dean was relatively sure Richard didn't have these on his face when he arrived in the taxi to begin with, but it was possible he'd gotten them out on the town while drinking, maybe in a pub scuffle or something like that. 
So this didn't sound great for Richard, who the police were keen to speak with next. He confirmed much of the story Dean had told police. He'd met her at the Nippon, they'd come back to the ship, weren't let aboard, so went down the wharf behind the shed. Things hadn't gone the way he'd hoped, so Richard told police they'd parted ways amicably, he said goodnight to her and returned to the boat. Richard did say that there were some fishermen nearby and Sarah may have gone down to the end of the wharf to talk with them, but he didn't see her after this and wasn't sure if or how she'd left the wharf and subsequently disappeared. As for the scratches on his face, Richard confirmed he noticed them but only the following morning and had no recollection as to how he'd gotten them. So the next thing police looked into was Richard's claim that there were some fishermen nearby at the time. If they could confirm this, maybe there was some truth to what he was saying and they could speak with these anglers. And it turned out there were at least a couple of fishermen nearby at the time. David Jones and Heath Douglas were their names. And indeed, they were casting a few lines around this time of the morning. David said between midnight and 3am, he'd seen two taxis arrive at the Navy boat and then leave. This was the first time we've heard of a second taxi, So it presented the possibility that someone else may have followed Sarah and Richard back and hadn't been seen. But David and Heath hadn't seen or had any interaction with Sarah, they told police. They'd only heard something around 20 minutes after the two taxis departed. And that was a woman yelling words to the effect of, what the fuck are you doing and get off me. This was followed by a scream, presumably from the same female, after which everything went quiet. Down the track, David provided a second statement which said he'd heard a splash in the water some five minutes after this scream, but he hadn't recalled hearing this splash, which sounded like a big rock being thrown into the water, at the time of giving his first statement. So at this stage, things weren't seemingly looking too flash hot for Richard Durrah. Yet, the possibility of Sarah taking off of her own accord continued to come up as the investigation progressed. A number of sightings came in, some from people who knew Sarah quite well in the time after this. Lynette Main, who had known Sarah for a number of years, gave a statement saying that she had seen Sarah and exchanged waves with her on the 16th of January, some two days later, in Hammersley Street, Broome. Amanda Hill, who was a friend of Margaret Mippy's daughter, also stated that she had seen Sarah on the 14th, the day after she had been out at night, when she returned to the Mippy's home and grabbed one of her bags. Ian McIntosh, who'd worked as a TAFE coordinator back in One Arm Point, said he'd also seen and spoken with Sarah on the 16th, some two days after she'd last been seen. He later amended that date, but only to the day prior, being Wednesday the 15th. Two more witnesses, Shane Cheery of the HMAS Geelong, who'd seen Sarah at the Nippon the night before her disappearance, and Elizabeth Miller, who'd known Sarah for many years, both provided statements noting they'd seen her on the 15th and 16th, travelling in a car and at a bar respectively. Again, both sightings gave police the distinct belief that Sarah was around and perhaps didn't want to be found. Elizabeth's sighting in particular was significant as she was sure of the date. It was her son's birthday. But perhaps the strangest of all sightings came from a woman named Bernadette Karma, and her statement was received some two months later in mid-April. Bernadette told a tale of spending some time with Sarah throughout February and March. 
Her story was interesting enough that police had put her under hypnosis to try and elicit more detail, and while under hypnosis, Bernadette gave what was noted as a compelling account of meeting Sarah in Darwin. With them was a guy named Gavin Cooper. According to Bernadette, Gavin turned out to be a rather vicious individual because after they went for a drive one time, he attacked the pair, pushing Sarah to the ground and then sexually assaulting Bernadette. So this was a very strange tale and really had police looking all over the place for leads as to where Sarah might be. While in Darwin, police again spoke with Richard Durra as he was docked there by this stage. They noted that in an earlier statement, he'd actually mentioned that when he first returned to the HMAS Geelong, he was by himself and not with Sarah. His later statement to detectives contradicted this, where he said they were together but had parted ways amicably on the wharf. Richard clarified this aspect of the night to his recollection, and by this stage, with the swag of sightings of Sarah by a number of people who knew her, police discounted his potential involvement in her disappearance. It was more likely he was just a guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Meanwhile, back in the local community of One Arm Point, Sarah's family were trying their best to cope with her loss. They hadn't seen their daughter for going on three months now, and had nothing but a string of possible sightings from across the top end. A lot of the information coming in was diluted, and there was a bubbling sense of dissatisfaction with the police investigation, so much so that one of the original investigators, a detective named Neville Collard, was called back in to assist with the ongoing inquiries. Neville was an Indigenous man and a friend of Sarah's family, and indeed this was a big reason for him coming back into the fold. Neville went back over the investigation to this point and sifted through a number of leads from within the local community, including speaking with taxi driver Klaas Kiewit again. And it turned out, according to Neville, Klaas had actually waited around for about one hour after dropping Sarah off for her to return before heading back to town. This didn't completely gel with the earlier reports from the fishermen, David and Heath, and from the sailor Dean. It was strange that they hadn't noticed this taxi stay there for one hour and it raised some questions as to why Klaas placed himself there for a further hour. Had Sarah asked him to wait or was he concerned for her welfare? Whatever the case, Klaas later stated he couldn't recall waiting at all or speaking with Neville Collard. As time went on, the waters just seemed to get murkier and Sarah's family were left wondering and grieving for the loss of their beautiful daughter. Despite his tireless inquiries and his frustration at how the initial investigation had progressed, Neville Collard was only sure of a few things in the years that followed. Firstly, he believed that because Sarah was Indigenous, the investigation hadn't been conducted as it should have been, and as it might have been if she were white. Secondly, he was sure no one in Broome was connected with Sarah's disappearance. Word spreads like wildfire within Indigenous communities and if someone within it was involved, someone would know and he would have found out. But that hadn't happened. The last thing he knew for sure was that Sarah hadn't taken off on her own. She was dead and he believed that she'd lost her life that night on that wharf. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. As often happens in cases like this, the trail went cold after all leads were seemingly exhausted. After the initial police investigation, Neville Collard doggedly pursued answers for the Davy family for some time and struggled to see why the line of inquiry with Richard Durrah wasn't pursued further. At the time, however, police remained steadfast in their belief that the sightings of Sarah after that night, and there were several credible ones, indicated strongly that she was still alive. Something may have happened to her since, but not on the wharf that night. As the years went on and no sign of Sarah surfaced, the possibility that she may have gone off on her own accord became less and less. And if she was gone, who was responsible? After his 2005 conviction of the 2001 murder of Peter Falconio, Bradley Murdoch was suggested by the Davy family as a potential suspect in Sarah's case. Murdoch didn't keep his disdain for Indigenous Australians under wraps, He'd even been jailed for a nine-month stretch for shooting at a group of Aboriginal people in the town of Fitzroy Crossing. Murdoch had been living in the Broome area, arriving just five months before Sarah disappeared. And while the circumstances of the Falconio case were very different, there was allegedly evidence presented at his trial which indicated he had a modus operandi to stalk and rape women and teenagers. This was reported by The Age in 2006 after speaking with the Davy family. But in the end, this line of inquiry was really a dead end. Aside from a few of these facts and allegations against Murdoch, there was no significant circumstantial or physical evidence connecting him to whatever may have happened to Sarah. It wouldn't be until almost another 10 years that the Davy family would see some notable action in their daughter's case when in 2015, the Western Australian Special Crime Squad conducted a review of this investigation. I think it'd be fair to say by this time, 18 years on, there had been some progression in policing practices and investigative procedures. The cold case review identified a number of areas that should be revisited, first and foremost being the sightings of Sarah after she was categorically last seen. This area really needed clarification, If all or a large number of these people were able to reaffirm their statements or provide some sort of evidence corroborating them, then they might be very significant. 
But during the past two decades, it had also become more widely known that eyewitness testimony and sightings can be unreliable, particularly with the passage of time. But what happened when the police did revisit and re-interview these witnesses was actually quite shocking. Lynette Main, who Sarah knew and had initially stated she'd exchanged waves with her on the 16th, now confirmed to police reinvestigating it was actually the 13th, the same day she'd arrived at Margaret Mippy's. Amanda Hill, Margaret Mippy's daughter's friend, who originally said she'd seen Sarah come home on the 14th the following day, now told police that she wasn't sure, but back at this time 15 years ago, was drinking alcohol quite heavily. This had been a big problem for her over the years, and while she no doubt had been truthful back then, she might have gotten the days wrong. Ian McIntosh, the TAFE coordinator, reconsidered his initial date given and now believed the 13th was the day he had seen Sarah. And Elizabeth Miller's sighting of Sarah at a bar had already been discounted by Neville Collard some years earlier when he spoke with two other women Elizabeth claimed to be with at the time and they said she had those details wrong. Shane Cheery, who was from the HMAS Geelong, his statement was completely discounted as he'd only met Sarah once that night, probably while drinking, so his sighting of her carried very little weight. And finally, Bernadette Karma, the woman who provided the compelling tale about her and Sarah spending some time together and being attacked by a man named Gavin Cooper. Well, she confessed to making the whole thing up. She'd been a heavy drug user at the time, she now told police, and hadn't been in control of her life. So near all of these supposed sightings, which were weighted quite heavily during the initial investigation and indeed took up much of police's time in inquiries, now appeared to be false and virtually useless. The review also identified one glaring irregularity, which at the time wasn't weighted heavily enough, and that was the inconsistencies in the first and second version of events Richard Durrah had provided police. First up, he told Northern Territory Police that he'd travelled back to the HMAS Geelong by himself, waited for Sarah for half an hour, but she never showed up, so he boarded and forgot all about it. That contradicted his second statement, which confirmed they'd arrived in the taxi together, which was supported by what his fellow sailor Dean Fraser had observed. There were now more than enough inconsistencies for things to progress further, and Richard Durrah's version of events to be more thoroughly scrutinised. The Special Crime Squad continued investigating, but in the meantime, referred the matter to the state coroner. On the 6th of April 2016, an inquest was held, and at the conclusion of which, Coroner King stated the following. There is undoubtedly a strong inference that can be drawn from the evidence that Mr Durrah killed the deceased on the wharf. It is also possible that during or after the confrontation, the deceased accidentally fell from the wharf into the sea and was unable to swim to land. That possibility is made more realistic by evidence that the deceased appeared quite intoxicated. In these circumstances, I am unable to find the appropriate standard of proof that Mr Durra killed the deceased. Richard Durra hadn't been charged and he didn't appear at the inquest to give evidence and there was a very good reason for that. Some two years earlier, on the 9th of August 2014, Richard Durra attended the Lone Ranger's Shooting Gallery gun range in Belmont. Here, he hired a handgun to use for some target practice. 
He entered one of the booths and proceeded to use a pair of wire cutters to snip the gun free. These range guns are fastened in place so they can only be pointed forward, but by cutting the wire, Richard was able to get it free. He then shot himself in the head and died at the scene. So he was no longer around to give evidence and clarify what happened on the wharf that night. About one week after Richard's death, his partner received a large parcel in the post, which had been sent by Richard. Inside was his mobile phone, laptop and a notebook, which contained some disturbing information, including how he planned to take his own life. Richard noted that he'd found religion in the time before his death and this newfound clarity had made life hard to live with the weight of some of his actions in the past. Was one of these actions killing Sarah on the wharf that night? Richard didn't say explicitly, but he did provide a chilling indication of the likelihood when he wrote, I did kill three times. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Richard Dara was born on the 27th of March 1977 and grew up in the area of Innes Park, Queensland. He lived in the area until 1994, during which time he was sexually abused by a family friend. He joined the Royal Australian Navy in 1995, becoming a marine technician after this, and was posted to HMAS Geelong in 1996. He was 19 at the time he met Sarah in 1997. Richard entered the Navy keen and willing to do his job and advance up the ranks, but in a short space of time he spiralled out of control and began abusing alcohol and drugs. He was noted as being quite unpopular with the other sailors, most of whom found him to be immature, unreliable, a big talker with the ladies and a compulsive liar to his fellow crew. They nicknamed him Bambi for whatever reason, and when he was on duty, Richard required constant supervision to ensure he did his job. Richard did have one mate, a guy named Peter Sargent, who felt somewhat obligated to be friends with him. And Peter had seen and heard of Richard's personal struggles. He'd been accused of a house break-in on Cockatoo Island one time and had a bad break-up with a girlfriend who'd fallen pregnant. All of Richard's problems boiled over not long after he'd been in Broome and he was subsequently discharged due to his psychological unfitness. His psychological assessment noted a few worrying things, indicating his problem was more psychotic rather than neurotic. He had serious antisocial tendencies, was prone to angry outbursts and felt justified in acting selfishly and dishonestly, as that's how he viewed others. In the year 2000, some three years after finishing up in the Navy, Richard was charged with attempted murder for running down a pedestrian in his vehicle. 
Court records indicated Richard had been attacked earlier by this man. The sentencing judge noted, Your case was a special one in that you were suffering the inevitable consequences of the child abuse inflicted on you. In your confused psychiatric state when you were assaulted, you tended to identify your attacker with the person who had destroyed your childhood. It was said that the depressive illness Richard had is what caused him to react this way, extravagantly and with all the violence he could muster. He was found guilty on the lesser charge of intending to cause grievous bodily harm and received a five-year term with a 12-month minimum. As a result, Richard's DNA was entered into a national database, and it took a while, some eight years, but police would ultimately find a link with Richard's DNA profile and another unsolved case from 1998. In November of that year, some 22 months after Sarah Davey had disappeared, 29-year-old Rachel Campbell was found murdered in Rosebury, New South Wales. Her body had been dumped at the St Joseph's Church and the person who had killed her had done so in a brutal fashion. Rachel had been stabbed four times in the neck, strangled, bitten and raped. And while a semen sample was found at the scene, it didn't lead to a potential perpetrator at the time. However, a cold case review in 2008 noted that the offender's DNA hadn't been uploaded to the national database. When police requested this be done, it matched with that of Richard Durrah. By the time all this happened, it was 2009 and Richard was living in Osborne Park, Western Australia. Police arrested him here and extradited him back to New South Wales to stand trial. In April of 2010, Richard stood trial for Rachel's murder and he admitted to having consensual sex with her. However, when he left her, she was still alive. This wasn't as random and implausible as it sounds on the surface, as Rachel was a sex worker. However, the prosecution case had more problems than just that. They weren't sure exactly where Rachel had been killed, and Richard hadn't denied being with her. In fact, he had admitted to biting her, but he hadn't killed her, he said. Throw into the mix a defence theory that perhaps Rachel's estranged boyfriend was to blame for her murder, and with that, there was enough doubt in the jury's mind. He was acquitted and released. In the time after this, Richard returned to Western Australia and began a relationship with a woman named Joy. The couple had two children together and both went on to become Jehovah's Witnesses. Despite his acquittal, police continued investigating the case of Rachel Campbell, noting in 2012 that they now had information that an orange Volkswagen combi van had potentially been used to dispose of her body in the church grounds. Turned out Richard Durrah had actually sold an orange combi van back in 1999 when he'd briefly returned to Queensland, but police had been unable to locate the vehicle with the passage of time. Of course we know that Richard went on to take his own life at the age of 37, leaving behind the non-specific confession that he had killed three times. But this was a guy who had worked a number of different jobs in his time. Aside from the Navy, he had been a sheet metal fabricator, a commercial diver, air system technician, a welder and even a postie. He'd also lived in pretty much every Australian state and even ventured to New Zealand at one stage between May and August of 2006. And if Sarah Davey and Rachel Campbell were indeed two of Richard Durrah's victims, who was the third victim? My thoughts on this are reasonably brief, that this case and 
I suppose everyone is scary, but one like this, it just has that every person quality to it that, you know, what's to say this couldn't happen to any of us? And I guess that's the thing about true crime, that stories can highlight or cases can highlight how fleeting life can be and how a person's life can just be taken if someone else decides to for whatever reason. I just feel so bad for Sarah, Rachel and potential other victim out there. Um, It's just awful. What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, same in the sense that obviously, you know, I feel very sorry for the families involved and... uh, and I hope they're coping with the losses as best they can. But, you know, the the two we know of, that is, what about the third? Was there only three? You know, we've got a pretty reasonable timeline of where this guy was and, and when throughout his life. I spent a little bit of time looking through unsolved murders and missing persons cases from the states he was in at those times. There's certainly some possibilities, but mm. nothing that really stands out, which you'd connect him with uh, with certainty. But As always, someone uh, hearing this might piece a few things together. It might ring a bell or two. So if that's you, call Crime Stoppers 1800 000 and let them know. Yeah, that's it. Well, let's move on to our happy thoughts. Um, (laughs) What's yours for this week, Sean? Uh, Yeah, well, you've got lame (laughs) written next to uh, my note here, which is... You put housework. You pretty much put housework down. That is a cop-out because I told you you couldn't use Brooklyn (laughs) Nine-Nine. Yeah, but it wasn't just regular housework. It was a bunch of those little jobs, that the little niggly ones that take a little bit longer. Right. Uh, you know, not your five, ten-minute jobbies, your sort of 45-minute ones. I uh, had a bit of a list of those uh, that had been stacking up and managed to knock a few of them over this weekend. Right. So I think that kind of counts. Well, okay, the satisfaction of that, I'll, I'll allow it this week then. <laughs> Good, thanks. All right, well, mine's a two-parter. So first part is that I love a bit of cold weather and it's really kicked in in Victoria this weekend and this weekend was our first fire weekend. So we have a gas heater but, um, you know, we don't really put the wood fire on that often um, and we did it this weekend and it's just the best. It's so cosy and warm and I just love it. And the second part is just that last night I watched the Dolly Parton documentary that's on Netflix at the moment, in Australia at least, and just cried my eyes out. I just could not love her more if, you know, she didn't single-handedly pretty much with the help of scientists create the Moderna vaccine, which is like super effective on COVID. She's also just the best. Like everything she does, she's so smart and so funny and I just love her and I just honestly just cried at the end because she's so great. So that just... Kind of recommendation, kind of happy thought. <laughs> Do you know what I watched last night? Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah, in addition to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the Equaliser 2. Oh, do I want to know what that is? It sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> People can't see you, but just the the look of just disappointment <laughs> on your face. <laughs> Well, if that's it from us, if you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. Over there, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed, get ad-free and early release regular episodes, and a swag of bonus content as well. That's it from us this week. Thanks again for listening, folks, and we'll catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.